Good morning. So it's uh, beginning to look a lot like Christmas. And if you're paying attention, you've been driving around, you've started to see the lights. And if you've been in the department stores, you're starting to see the decorations. Now, what does that mean exactly? Well, one thing it means is that many of us at some point are going to be seated around a table with people that we might see two to three times a year. And oftentimes, a lot of interesting discussions ensue around that table. They can be good discussions. They can be interesting discussions. They can be perhaps even at times contentious discussions. So if you're looking for possible topics to talk around the dinner table, there was an interesting article that just came out. Uh, it, was out it was in the Huffington Post. And it encouraged readers not to shy away from one topic in particular. They strongly requested that they consider making an attempt at a civilized debate on the subject of climate change. <laughs> now, regardless of your stance on that issue, and frankly, I've, I've got friends that send me scholarly articles about this. I'm not smart enough to figure it out. I don't know, okay? So regardless of your stance on that, um, it is actually quite humbling to read this article as a Christian who cares about the Lordship of Christ to see how boldly this author outlines an evangelistic strategy for talking about climate change. Um, they, they say you need to convert people to a particular view on climate change. You need to make it personal. You need to appeal to their humanity. You need to employ some way of talking about the benefit and the cost of, of the, uh, the benefit of the cost analysis of it. Cost-benefit analysis. That's what I'm trying to spit out here. It's not a phrase I use very often. You business people out there, don't judge me. To convince the non-believers of climate change. Then the author goes on to urge readers to show how the path of the world, uh, it, it not only costs people money, but pain, suffering, and ultimately lives. And the argument would then demonstrate that the cost of ignoring the issue outweigh the benefits, hopefully, of initiating change of heart. The article is called, How to Talk to Your Climate Change Denying Relatives This Holiday Season. Yes, you can. That's what it's called. And the subtitle, Constructive Dialogue, is more important today than perhaps ever before. Now... Again, regardless of your opinion on climate change, I, there's probably people all over the place on this, um, it highlights that it's not just Christians that are out there trying to deliver a life-changing message. Now, let's think about this for a minute. Because the whole point of this conversation around the dinner table is to produce a deep heart change in people on this subject of climate change. And by doing so, if you take that to heart, it's going to govern the way you make decisions. It's going to govern the way you vote. It's going to institute change in the way you make day-to-day -day decisions in life. Because if you believe that down on a heart level to be true, it's going to cause a change in lifestyle in you, which is exactly what the author of this article is hoping is going to happen. 
Now, maybe your highest truth isn't climate change. Maybe it's something else. Hopefully, it's something else. But how does that come out in your life? The media presentation you just saw was very powerful about if you elevated Christ in your life, how would that come out? What would it look like? How would it change you in the workplace? How would it change what you put out there on social media? Is it the highest truth about you? Or maybe deep down, there's something else that's spurring you. Maybe if you're going to be totally honest, there's times when you may think, you know, maybe it's getting the right administration that's going to produce real change. Maybe the deepest truth about you is how others see you, and that governs the decisions you make. What is that highest truth? Now, for Christians, it's got to be the gospel. And perhaps the real question is, how is it that I live out the gospel in my life? How do I live in such a way that the gospel is reflected in me? How do I live in such a way that the first thing people think about when they see me isn't my politics, my views on climate change, but rather Christ himself? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Now we're entering into a new book. We're going to start in the book of Philippians today. And we'll be in Philippians chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 11 this morning. Philippians 1, verses 1 through 11. And there we read, From Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. I always pray with joy in my every prayer for all of you because of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am sure of this very thing, that the one who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is right for me to think, of, to think this about all of you, because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, all of you became partners in God's grace together with me. For God is my witness that I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And I pray this, that your love may abound even more and more in knowledge and every kind of insight, so that you can decide what is best, and thus be sincere and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What I want to talk to you about this morning in this book of Philippians that we're starting today is the prayers that come out of Paul. And we'll see a few different things. I want to start out uh, giving you a brief background as we introduce the book of Philippians. Um, uh, what the people were struggling with there, what the town even looked like. And then we'll go into a few different ways. I think we'll see uh, four ways. We'll see four ways that we live out the gospel in life based on this, this passage we see here this morning. So we'll jump in now. Um, Paul has written out this prayer that you just saw. The first part of the prayer is thanksgiving for them. The second part of the prayer is something he's praying for them. So let's jump in now. Let's look at uh, a little bit of the background. First of all, 
Philipp, Philippi, by the way, there's a town in West Virginia called Philippi. And it's spelled the exact same way. So I'm going to get, if you hear me say Philippi, I'm talking about Philippi, all right? Just so you know. It's got a real nice covered bridge. You should go there sometime. Um, the town is actually located up here at the northern part of the Aegean Sea. And the town of Philippi was situated right on a harbor. And there was some gold around there, so it was a popular place to live. There were some, some people that tried to conquest Philippi a time or two. And there's a giant theater there. Anybody ever been to this theater in Philippi? Okay. Um, there's this giant theater there. There's also some ruins of this old basilica. And this was actually the, the Basilica of St. Paul. And it was built in 343. And there was a mosaic they found that said Basilica of St. Paul right there at the location. So there's still a lot of ruins of the city that are, that are around. And we jump in now uh, into verse 1. From Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from our Lord and Father, from our God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul has a history with Philippi. When he, when he writes this, this letter, he's actually in prison in Rome. And if you go back to Acts 16, you see what life was like for Paul and Silas when they did their ministry there in Philippi. And they got the church set up. It was quite eventful. They were beaten. They were flogged. They were put in jail. They actually cast a demon out of a, a young woman who was a fortune teller. Some men got mad at them for casting that demon out of her. allowed her to tell fortunes. And they went and complained. And that, that led into a subsequent beating, being thrown in jail. Then there was an earthquake. The jail cells sprung open. The Philippian jailer came in ready to kill himself because not everybody was going to escape. Paul said, just hold off, chill out a minute, share the gospel with him. He and his whole family were saved. So he's got some history, right, with the town of Philippi. That's where he planted this church. It was on a second missionary journey. So all that, all that led to the planting of this church there at the north of the Aegean Sea. So he writes this letter to this established church. Uh, and the church was very concerned about the fact that Paul was in prison. So they sent a man named Epaphroditus at one point to meet with Paul while he was in prison there. And Epaphroditus took a gift, uh, took a, a financial gift to Paul while he was there. So some have said that the book of Philippians is almost like a thank you note that Paul wrote to the Philippians for this financial gift that he'd received. But in addition to that, Paul also took the opportunity to address uh, problems that were occurring in the church. And the problems come up rather quickly. There's rivalry between two ladies going on there. There's some false teaching that's seeped in. Then there's rivalry that's going on among people. So that's the backdrop of this book. And now we jump into these first two verses. And the first thing I notice is this incredibly humble greeting. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. In some letters, Paul refers to himself as an apostle, but not here. He's referring to both he and Timothy as slaves. Timothy was probably his secretary at the time. Uh, may well have been the one who dictated this letter. We're not sure. But he was present there with Paul in Rome. And there's this picture that, that, that we get uh, that's painting a service to God. Even though Nero was in charge of the empire, 
that's not who Paul is serving. Even though Nero could take his life at any time, Paul is saying, I'm a slave of Christ. Now, we have, we have not made it past the first clause of this book, and yet there's something we need to pause and take notice of. Uh, you see, this is what it truly means to be a Christian. It is to be a slave of Jesus Christ. So what does that mean? The slave in the Roman Empire was not a free person. However, they were afforded a number of rights. Um, you, could be, uh, you could own property. You could even have other, other slaves under you. Uh, this was a good way to get out of debt, as a matter of fact. You could sell yourself in slavery to the, to the one to whom you were indebted. And you would take this designation as a slave. It definitely uh, has the connotation of humility and servitude. Um, people would sell themselves again. So for Paul, articulating this relationship to Christ, and he's even speaking for Timothy here, he's saying Christ is my master. Now, there was status associated with being a slave, but it depended on the one to whom you were enslaved. If you were a slave in the house of Caesar, there was a lot of status went, that went with that because of the status of Caesar. But Paul is identifying his status with that of Jesus Christ. You know, Christ speaks of this matter in Matthew 6, 24. He says, no one can serve two masters. For either he's going to hate one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. He says you cannot serve God and money. This is what he specifically calls out in Matthew 6. So just let me ask a question right off the bat here. What is it, or who is it, that's trying to be your master? Oftentimes, it's that thing from which you truly derive your worth and your value. Um, there's a section in a, in a book called The Reason for God by Tim Keller. And he talks about how easy it is for us to be mastered by something, something that we derive our worth and value from. And oftentimes, it's something that's not bad in and of itself, but it becomes an ultimate thing. And for example, he talks about work. And he says, if if you center your life and identity on your work and your career, he says you'll be a driven workaholic and a boring, shallow person. At worst, you'll lose family and friends, and if your career goes poorly, develop deep depression. Is work your master? We're actually made to be a slave to Christ. And ironically... We'll only find freedom when we're a slave to Jesus Christ. You know why? Because no one will ever love you like Christ does. The other masters, they will not love you. But Christ loves you beyond your imagination. And it's the only place you're going to find freedom. Freedom from panic and anxieties and so many things that, things that plague us in life. Paul's going to talk about that very specifically as we go on. Uh, through the book. God's priorities need to be our priorities. We find fulfillment in his love for us. Augustine of Hippo, one of the church fathers, lived around uh, the third century. He said this about having multiple masters. He said, the good man, though a slave, is free. 
the wicked, though he reigns, is a slave. And not the slave of a single man, but what is worse, the slave of as many masters as he has vices. The good man, and we could put in there the Christian man or woman, though they may be working as a slave or free, but the wicked man, though he may be king, though he could be in charge of everybody, is going to be a slave to his vices if he's wicked. So how do we live out this gospel? First of all, it's by being a slave for Christ. It's by being a slave for Christ. There is no substitute. So now that we've gone through the very first clause of the book, and if we continue on this pace, we'll finish up sometime around Christmas next year. (laughs) We're not going to take that long. Uh, We'll speed this up a little, not too much. We continue on, and we see the book is addressed uh, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. And that is to say, all the Christians at this time attending this church. That's who this book is addressed to. And then he breaks out the leaders. Now, that's interesting to me. Don't just skip over that, that little part right there. It's kind of like when the teacher would call out the class. Now, when I was growing up, I was a daydreamer. And I was frequently not paying attention. It still happens from time to time. Uh, and the teacher would say something like, okay, class, give me your attention. And that means you too, Chad. That's what Paul is doing here. He's getting the attention of these overseers. There's going to be something for them later. So then the greeting ends at verse 2, and Paul now begins to describe how he's been praying for this church. So we move into a different part of this section. We're now going into the prayer portion of this section. And it's divided up in two parts. There's a part of of thanksgiving. There's a prayer for thanksgiving for some things the Philippians are doing pretty well. And then there's another part of the prayer where they need some encouragement in a few areas. So we'll look at verses 3 through 8. That's the thanksgiving portion of this prayer. And in verse 3, he says, I thank my God every time I remember you. And notice he says, my God. He's talking about this very personal relationship that he has with the Lord. He's my God. He loves us individually. He knows us better than anyone. Our God. He loves us as a church, and he loves each of us specifically and individually. So he's talking about my God, and, he, and then Paul thanks the Philippians. He says, every time I remember you. Paul rarely thanks God for things. It's almost always for people. And he includes everybody in this Philippian church. Isn't it great that we get along perfectly with everybody in the church? (laughs) (laughs) We're people, and we can be difficult. But Paul makes no qualification here. He's not saying, except for you people that cause me grief. He's not saying, except for you people that frustrate me. He says, I thank you for everybody in the church. There's something deep here that we do not want to miss, and it is this subject of thankfulness. You see, the gospel gives you and I a unique perspective in life because the people and the events that occurred in our lives, though they may be horrible, they could be terrible, saddening, horrific, are not without purpose. 
as Christians, we can live with an almost delusional hope. And I say almost delusional because it's not a delusion. We can have that tremendous hope because we know that everything God is bringing in us is for our benefit. And I do not want to just say that without stopping and acknowledging how horrible life can be at times when things happen that we do not understand. A death that seems to make no sense. And yet we can live with this hope that Paul is talking about here. As a matter of fact, thanksgiving is a major tenet of Pauline, Pauline just means pertaining to Paul, of Pauline theology. It's core to what he says. And if you miss this topic of thanksgiving, you're going to miss the theme of Philippians. There's a quote uh, from Gordon Fee, who's a scholar on the book of Philippians, and he says this. He talks about Pauline spirituality. He says the point is that, is that gratitude expressed by the way of thanksgiving is the beginning point the proper stance of humility before God for His grace. In recognizing His congregations both as belonging to God, not to Himself, and as God's gifts to Him, He is thus set free to thank God for them, for all of them. This sounds kind of cheesy, but I'm going to say it anyway. It starts with this attitude of gratitude. Thank you for not making me say that by myself. <laughs> that is the proper stance, the right state of mind before God. Paul understands that this group of men and women belong to God. He has divinely chosen to put them there at this time. Now, just take a second and look around you for a minute. It's okay. Just go ahead. Take it. Just look around. Look at the people sitting around you. Just glance left and right for a minute. Do you know that God has put them at, in Sheridan, Wyoming, at First Baptist Church, right now, for a reason? And there's a reason there to be thankful for that person to your left and right. That's the attitude we're talking about. Think about that before you send out that, that zinger email. Think about that before you get ready to blast something out there on social media. Stop and think, am I thankful for that person that I get to serve God with? God has brought them here. We trust God is working things out. That doesn't mean we get along all the time. Uh, I, remember I, I listened to that last sermon by Tom when he was here, talking about the role of a pastor, talking about how part of his role was to go out and act like a mother sometimes and break it up little fights here and there. <laughs> Thanking God is part of the joy of the Christian. So the second way of living out the gospel is by thanking God for others. Having that attitude that I'm thankful for this person who's here with me. That's supernatural. That's not natural. Now we go on to verses 4 through 6. He said, I always pray with joy in my every prayer for all, for all of you because of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I'm sure of this very thing that the one who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And, and remind yourself, where is Paul when he's writing this? He's sitting in a prison cell when he's writing this letter. 
He said he prays with joy for this church. And why? There in verse 5, because of their participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, now what does that mean, their participation in the gospel? Because Paul is saying that both he and the Philippians, they've got a mutual relationship with Christ in the gospel. Well, what does that mean? Well, obviously it means first that they've put their faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That was the starting place. They first heard the message from Paul. They put their faith in the message. Secondly, it means they're spreading the gospel. That they're making the gospel known. And how are they spreading the gospel? Well, one, ba- one way is by partnering with Paul. They are providing Paul with financial support. By the way, that's the third way we live out the gospel, is by supporting co-laborers in the work of the gospel. Now, obviously, this is something we still need today. Uh, we, were, we were able to hear from one of our missionaries from World Venture last week. That's, that's one of the organizations that we've partnered with to make the gospel known throughout the world. Um, but there's other missionary agencies we work with as well. But all of these missionaries and organizations, they need funding. Um, and I can tell you personally that I'm very thankful that I'm able to work full-time as a pastor. So part of the conversation I want to have right now is to thank you. I want to thank this church for their generosity, for your giving. I didn't know I was going to be able to be a full-time pastor when I got out of seminary. I just thought I might have to be a pastor full-time and work full-time. I didn't know how that was going to work. I'm very thankful for what I get to do. That's a testament of your generosity as givers. But you know what? The work's not done yet. We have to keep giving. The work's not done in the rest of the world. The work's not done here in Sheridan, Wyoming. We still have things we have to do. And there's good gospel-focused groups out there uh, here in Sheridan that need financial support. We've got a wonderful organization here that uh, helps people break addictions. We've got one to help young women uh, who are pregnant and scared, and they think their only option is to have an abortion. We've got a wonderful group out there to help young women that are in that position, to, the, to give them a, a pro-life, pro-family alternative to abortion. We need to support our gospel co-laborers. Paul continues this prayer of thanksgiving in verse 6 to say that he's 100% sure that the members of this church are on the road to perfection. Now again, he's setting up the rest of the book, but here in the beginning, because he's going to expound more on this in chapter 2, he tells them, he's going to actually tell them to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. That's a little later on. Because as Christians, we need to be excited about the future. We need to be excited about how God is changing us into something better than we are today. And I love the way that Martin Luther King said this. He said, I may not be the man I want to be. I may not be the man I ought to be. I may not be the man I could be. I may not be the man I truly can be. But praise God, I'm not the man I once was. Paul says God is perfecting us until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, what does that mean? You see, our final hope as Christians is not that we get to die and be with Jesus, although that's better than it is right now. 
Our final hope is the resurrection. When we get to be whole again, when we get our bodies back, and they're perfected. That's what's going to happen at this day of Christ Jesus. That's why our perfection won't be complete until we get our bodies back. He concludes this prayer of thanksgiving, then in verse 7. He says, For it is right for me to think about think this about all of you, because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel, all of you became partners in God's grace together with me. So Paul expresses this deep affection, saying there in his heart, they become partners with him in God's grace. And notice what Paul says just before. He says, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So Paul was imprisoned because of the gospel. He faced hostility because of the gospel. And so won't these Philippians. They're going to face persecution. They're going to face Roman hostility as well. And it says as much in verse 30. We'll, we'll get there later. I'll give you lots of previews of what's to come. So Paul finishes this prayer then in verse 8. He says, For God is my witness that I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now what does this mean? Paul's saying he's got a deep love for these Philippians. But it is the love that Christ has for them as well. And I love the way that the Bible Knowledge Commentary states this. Christ's love had so overwhelmed Paul that his affection was Paul's very own. He's loving the people with the love that he's been shown by Christ. And that's spilling over onto them. One last observation I want to make about this prayer of thanksgiving is Paul's inhibition of expressing his love to the people that are there. You know, it's not the easiest thing in the world sometimes to look somebody in the eye and say, I love you. It's risky. Sometimes it can even be inappropriate. But I love the way Paul expresses this. You know what, dads? Our kids need to hear that from us. They need to know, without exception, that we love them. Our spouses need to know that. Our parents need to know that. And Paul is in, in, uninhibited when sharing this. So now we get to verses 9 through 11. And we find it is one long, continuous sentence. It's like that in Greek, and it's like that in English. So starting there in verse 9, And I pray this, that your love may abound even more and more in knowledge and every kind of insight, so that you can decide what is best. And thus be sincere and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, the glory and praise of God. Now, that's a lot. That's a whole lot. There's actually seven statements he's making there. They're laid out sort of like this. They're all related, building on each other. And, for the, and it anticipates, again, the remainder of the letter. But for our purposes, I really just want to focus on these first three statements that Paul is saying here to these Philippians. And it's a lot in and of itself. And it starts with this abounding love. Uh, he says, um, I want you to have this growing, abounding love. Now, love can be very confused. 
Sometimes I believe we see love sort of as this big, pink, squishy ball that just kind of rolls over everybody and makes you feel real good. But that's not really the kind of love that Paul is speaking of here. Um, He's speaking of a love that looks to someone else's best, to their, their benefit. It benefits the one who is loved. Remember that word, chesed, that we were talking about in the book of Ruth? That's what Paul's talking about here. A love that doesn't seek itself, but seeks the best for someone else. So, it's a choice. It's choosing to love someone. Later in Paul, in chapter 2, Paul's going to say, don't be motivated by vain conceit and selfishness. This is an issue that they're struggling with, evidently. So we're talking about this loyal love for somebody else. You know, part of the problem with loving people is you get to know them. You know, this is why sometimes it's easier to love somebody outside your family than it is to love somebody inside your family. We usually, let me back up, we don't always love somebody more as we get to know them. It can be difficult because we're messy, complicated people. Uh... Paul prays this kind of love would abound. But not only that, because look at item two there. He also prays for an increase in knowledge and depth of insight. And that word knowledge, uh, it comes from the Greek uh, Greek word epinosis. And this goes beyond like a book knowledge. Okay, This goes into a, a deep experiential kind of a knowledge of something. right? So if you're about to have surgery... You don't want the surgeon looking at you saying, well, I've read about surgery. This is my first time actually doing it, right? (laughs) Or a pilot. Well, I've read about flying, and this is the first time I'm going to fly a plane. That's not the kind of knowledge we're talking about here. It's something that goes beyond that. And Paul has pinned together growth in love with growth in depths and insights of the Lord. Those two go hand in hand. Um, You've heard this that people don't care how much you know until what? Until they know how much you care. And that's a trite thing to say, but it's true. Paul's going to say in, Corinthians, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 8, 1, that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Knowing stuff, even knowing stuff about the Bible can puff you up with pride. But do you love people? What comes with that, in verse 10, item 3, is the ability to approve the things that really matter. This is about knowing how to live life. This is about knowing how to make good decisions. This is about being a disciple of Christ. This is about learning about Him. At the same time, as you learn more about Him, you love people more and more, and then you can make better and better decisions to help you live life. It's about being at church. It's about being an an, an active participation, uh, an active participator here in a community of believers. All that is encapsulated in what Paul's saying here. So we abound in love, accompanied by learning, so we get better and better at the art of living. And I kind of came up with my own way of putting those things together. 
loving and learning for living. Something about those L's, I just, loving and learning for living. This is how we live out the gospel. This is how we show each other that the highest truth in our lives is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to conclude um, with this story. It's actually told by uh, John Piper in his book, Don't Waste Your Life. He, he talks about a man in his dad's congregation. His dad was a, a fiery, evangelistic kind of a preacher. And there was one man in the church that forever was sitting there and sitting there and sitting there. They were praying for him. He wasn't a believer. They were wondering if he would ever come forward, if, if, if the gospel would ever break through. He was hard. He was resistant. Then one day at the end of a service, during a hymn, to, to everybody's amazement, he came forward. He took John Piper's father by the hand. They sat down together on the front pew of the church. And as the people were dismissed, God opened his heart to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he believed it. His sins were given, forgiven, and he was given eternal life. But that did not stop him from sobbing and crying. And he kept saying over and over again, I've wasted it. I've wasted my life. But you know what? That wasn't true. Because see, even a, even a life that doesn't meet Christ until the very end is still 100% redeemed. There was a Scottish theologian named Thomas Boston that said it this way. Our present existence is only a short-term preface to a long eternity. If that's true, then the man's life was not wasted. He was only beginning an eternal life of praise. Five years, ten years, fifty years. When you come to faith in Jesus, you get to spend an eternity loving and praising Him. But you know what? Why wait a moment longer? You've only got one life to live. Don't waste it by living it for yourself when you can live it out in the service of Jesus. You know, I'm going to pray in a moment. After that, we don't do traditional invitations here normally, but I'm going to come down to the front. As Sam is playing and as people are filing out, if you have not yet put your trust in Jesus Christ, please come forward and talk to me about that. I would love to introduce you to the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're struggling with whether or not you've done that, if you're doubting about whether or not you've done that, please come forward and take a minute and talk to me. Let's pray together. God, it is an honor to be able to serve you. It's an honor to be able to live out the good news and the gospel. God, give us the courage. Lord, I pray that you would be our master, that we would be your slave. I pray, God, that we would continue to abound in love and knowledge of you. Forgive us of our sins. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you. You're dismissed.